Welcome to Education Futures Podcast. I'm John Moravec. And I'm Kelly Moravec. And we have some new theme music. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time since our last uh, podcast episode, and I don't know, I was feeling the music we had before was a little bit too corporate sounding, so I thought uh, to get something different to, um, you know, jazz things up a bit. Mm-hmm. I liked the old music. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one of the many things that we just may have to disagree on, I think. <laughs> but, uh... Well, give us a shot, see how it works, and um, always inviting uh, uh, listener feedback as well. Mm-hmm. All right, Kelly, so our last episode uh, went out on March 29th of this year. Mm-hmm. Do you believe that? Yeah. And so it's been about nine months. Mm-hmm. What have you been up to? Um, well, I finished up a school year uh, with my job and finished up a a class at Hamlin where I teach grad school and I taught a brand new class last summer that I've never taught before. That was a lot of fun. And then started another new school year with new student teachers, new work with AVID and another new class at Hamlin. What have you been up to? I've been busy too. Mm-hmm. Thanks to your uh, prodding. I uh, I ran for school board in our community mm-hmm. of uh, Bloomington, Minnesota. So that was fun. I decided to run in the middle of August and ran fast, ran hard. And if you're looking at social media, I think I kind of made it look like I was running for president of the United States. (laughs) But we lost. Had we been able to flip 100 votes, uh, we would have uh, taken a seat. But we came really close. And that was pretty good for somebody who just moved in here uh, two years ago, going out meeting our neighbors for the first time and uh, sharing a message that I think is uh, quite a bit progressive, I think, for this community. Mm -hmm. What's your message? You know, I ran a platform of just simply uh, putting our kids in our schools first. And a lot of my message was based around the principles of Manifesto 15. And in particular, kids are people too, mm-hmm. uh, with equal rights and responsibilities. And I found that message resonated very well. Also going to bat for our teachers. Uh, they've been slammed around a bit, I think, by the district uh, in contract negotiations. I really, really ran on a platform of supporting our teachers and really treating and respecting people as professionals mm-hmm. and seeing people where they are uh, as teachers, but also as students. Mm-hmm. And so what's one thing that you learned about yourself through the run for school board? <laughs> You know, one thing I learned about myself is that I can be much more of an extrovert than I thought. I thought I was much more of an introverted person, but I really enjoyed uh, going door to door and knocking on doors and meeting with folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a great community out here. Um, so that's something that yeah, I learned and really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. What's the best part about knocking on doors? Well, I think the best part of knocking on doors is that school board is one of those areas that really not divisive. Uh, just about everybody out there is in support of our schools. And I really enjoyed having conversations with people that I think was very positive and focused on the future. Mm-hmm. Did you have any other unique campaign strategies that seemed to work pretty well? In this community, I think that uh, people have been running for office, have been been very focused on like the old school ways of running. And I ran hard with a strong social media campaign, social media message uh, launched with a video. Uh, announcing that I was running and really inviting people in to, to chat. So uh, you and I set up uh, meetups throughout the city mm-hmm. uh, at coffee shops, cafes, and pizza place uh, just to connect with folks, talk with people about things that are important with us, and just really driving that conversation and connecting with people. And I think that's something that we did very different that was very new for this community. 
And I think it's something that really helped us make a difference. Mm-hmm. And I think that final Facebook Live question and answer session that you did was pretty effective too. There were a lot of community members tuning in to that and either just listening in and watching or actively sending questions for you to respond to. Yeah. And the fun thing about that Facebook live session is that I wasn't even in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. I was in Ecuador then, uh, hanging out hotel lobby and running the, the last days of the campaign uh, virtually from Ecuador. Mm-hmm. And I think it's amazing what we could do with technology to, to continue these conversations and really connect with people on very, very authentic ways mm-hmm. uh, to, um, I don't know, hopefully bring forward some change. Yeah, I think that kind of segues into one of the other things we wanted to talk about today, which was France's new, is it law, position? Whatever it is banning cell phones in classrooms yeah france is banning cell phones in the classroom yeah how do you feel about that i mean to me it seems like the same thing as as banning fidget spinners or banning water bottle flipping or banning slime it's just one more way that people are trying to take away something that is engaging for students something that they do want to focus on with the expectation that if literally nothing else is left then they have to attend to whatever is happening in the classroom to me it seems like such a backwards way of thinking about the resources that students have at the tips of their fingers Uh, to me i feel schools should be capitalizing on the use of cell phones and technology as a tool for learning as opposed to just looking at it as a distraction. Yeah, I agree with you totally. Um, I think that we're ignoring the potentials for these tools to be used for more innovative purposes. And in the case of cell phones uh, in the classroom, I'm afraid that they're being banned simply because the schools haven't figured out how to compete with cell phones Mm -hmm. for students' attention. I mean, it's completely possible to... Uh, to learn with cell phones. And I think that this this response against them may be viewed as some people as a sort of innovation, as an intervention itself, but it's easy to communicate. It's easy to gain support for it. And it's just really a, you know, it's a cheap hack to to kind of continue what they've always been doing or what they had uh, traditionally done. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a little bit of a disservice. Mm-hmm. So I think that when they ban cell phones, I think they're going to discover that that nothing much else would have really changed. Right, that, uh, they're not going to expect any differences in performance or or anything because really the if you want to see changes in in performance you have to change the pedagogy mm-hmm. and it's the pedagogy has to match you know the outcomes that we need mm-hmm. and banning cell phones i don't think it's something that's going to make a big difference pedagogy wise right you can't expect anyone to attend to what it is that you think is important if it's not engaging and students aren't motivated to participate in it. So taking away every other bit of stimuli, it, that doesn't change the fact that they're still not going to be interested in engaging in something that is not relevant or is uninteresting or boring. And the the other thing, too, that the, the article brought up was the idea that cell phones are causing kids to isolate themselves and to, mm. you know, not... Uh, interact with one another socially and but the funny thing is at least in the article that i read uh the pictures that they included with the article as support showed groups of kids surrounding one person with a phone all interacting with one another over the content on the phone or you know a pair of kids or maybe three kids with and one 
turning the phone outward to the others so they could see whatever it was on the screen. So they were still interacting with one another socially. It just so happened that the content was on the screen as opposed to not on the screen. Hey, speaking of content on the screen, how do you feel about font sizes on papers? (laughs) I'm setting you up. Yes. So a little backstory, I guess, around that. Um, I belong to a Facebook group that is specific to my content area or my area of expertise, which is literacy. And someone in the group posted something, a frustration, that a student had uh, used a 12.5-point font as a way to make their writing longer and thus meet the page requirement of four to six pages. And so this teacher was asking for advice on what to do because she had already uh, written a referral uh, referring the student to the office and with a a paper trail that would end up in his permanent file uh, for insubordination. And she was frustrated because this child's parent uh, was calling and sending emails and, uh, you know, frustrated by the fact that her child was written up for insubordination just because he had changed the font size to 12.5 instead of leaving it at 12. I think <laughs> if you if you know me or you've listened to any of our podcasts, you probably guess what my response was, which was that, well, was the content of his writing good enough to show that he'd mastered whatever the standard or objective was? Because if that's the case, who cares if it's 12-point font or four to six pages? What difference do, does that make other than just that that's some structure or some criteria that you made up for yourself? And there was quite a bit of back and forth conversation with a lot of people not agreeing with me and until finally I was blocked. Blocked? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they blocked me. I guess but, I was a little more progressive in my thinking about font sizes and page requirements. But but when is a font size a reportable offense that could impact, uh, you know, the future of a, of a kid's life? You know, I mean, to me, it got, the whole conversation started centering around this idea that it's me, meaning the teacher, versus them, meaning the student and the parents. Uh, To me, it felt like, you know, this teacher had come up with this criteria and was going to hold each student to it no matter what, even when it was pointed out that it was kind of unreasonable. Um, You know, in the United States anyway, and in a lot of other places, we're we're moving toward or, you know, entrenched already in this standards-based grading and learning practices. And if, you know, if that's how you're grading things, Um, then the grade has to represent what a student knows and understands and is able to do. And to award points or take away points as a punishment because a child didn't use your font size or didn't use your your page requirements, that really has nothing to do with the content of the paper, with the skills or strategies that he or she was meant to master through writing this paper. Um, And that was my main point, that, you know... as a teacher, had I made that mistake, my instinct would be maybe I would feel a little silly for having done that and not realized it and having been kind of called out on it by a student who was, you know, smart enough to figure out how to game the system and, and make his font a different size so that he would have the right page count. Um, but, you know, you, you, 
you look at the mistake you made, you see if there's any, you know, bit of truth to what someone else is saying and you own up to it and you say, hey, you know what, you're right on this one. Really, your font size has nothing to do with what you know and understand and are able to do. And then you move on from there. But to me, adding things like that into a a rubric, that doesn't make any sense at all. I think it helps support the idea that school is turned into a bunch of hoop jumping for a lot of kids rather than focused on ideas and the quality and the creativity and innovative outcomes and products that we could create. Right. Absolutely. And that was kind of what some of the people on there argued. You know, they're going to have to follow guidelines in college. So why don't we prepare them for that now? (laughs) So to that, I responded, are you suggesting that a a font size and... um, you know, taking off points for not having the correct font size is somehow teaching something because the kid already knew the requirements. He knew what the guidelines were and he figured out a way to be able to turn in what he wanted to have assessed so that it met the guidelines of the page count. I mean, so he he knew what they were. He chose to, to game the system by changing the font size and, and turned in what he wanted to have turned in anyway. So it's not like we're teaching him to stick with guidelines that someone else created for him. He knew them. And to be fair, uh, in college, we do expect more professionalism from everybody. And it's not just the students, but also the teachers. I think we rarely ever see uh, college professors use uh, Comic Sans or a papyrus on uh, on any sort of college material. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, the level of professionalism is uh, upped up uh, quite a few notches for everybody. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and as a person who teaches college-level courses, I expect that there will be a reasonable font size. I never have a page count. That seems absurd to me. Um, I might give maybe some a page suggestion, just to give sort of a guideline for someone who maybe isn't sure of how much they should be writing. Um, But I would never give constraints on something like that. And I don't write rubrics because I want to clearly communicate the expectation. I don't want to spend time making up what it doesn't look like at at two or three levels below what the expectation is. Well, it seems to me that we got really lost or separated from the idea that teaching and learning is a very human experience. Well, it seems to me we need to think of ways to humanize teaching and learning. I think the issue that this teacher had with this student was that he lied, that he lied in using the 12 and a half point font rather than the 12 point font that was required. And she, it, it stung her ego a little bit, I think, when he confessed that in sort of a joking manner okay well it seems that the thing that got this kid the referral was the fact that he lied mm-hmm. and using a 12.5 font we should have used a 12 point font and mm-hmm. that really stung the teacher as, as i'm picking up is, is what you believe right what alternative things could we do instead of sending kids to the office or giving a referral or anything that impacts a permanent record well again I think you have to look at the content because really what we're saying here is the the difference between however many pages the writing turned out to be with the 12 point font versus that it met the threshold of four to six pages with the 12 and a half point font. What's the content of what he wrote? 
are we really saying that if he had just added one more paragraph in the 12 point font that he would have mastered whatever skills and strategies he was supposed to have shown through this paper or was it good enough at three and a half pages or whatever the page count was to show that he mastered those things i mean putting structures and guidelines in place just for the sake of them doesn't make sense to me at all so i think you know the learning experience here is we're not grading on things that don't matter we're grading on what what we're looking to see that the student knows and understands and is able to do and then beyond that if whatever happens that shows that he didn't fully master whatever it was he was supposed to then we provide more opportunities for him to learn those things and show them perhaps in other ways. Don't value what we measure. Measure what we value. So, John, you have been traveling quite a bit over the past um, maybe six weeks. And um, I know that you have plans to travel in another couple weeks uh, for a project that you're doing in Mexico that is pretty exciting. You've actually been working on this tool that you're creating for this research really since last summer. I know that's a part of what took you away from doing the podcast last summer too. What was keeping you busy was developing this tool. Um, so tell us a little bit about what you're doing in Mexico coming up and what the tool's all about. All right, yeah. Well, I've been traveling quite a bit. So I mentioned a little bit earlier that I was in Ecuador and I came back home and washed my socks and then uh, headed off to Qatar for the World Innovation Summit in Education. Um, and there we engaged a lot of... Uh, conversations on just having conversations how mm -hmm. we connect with people um and one of the the groups that was helping to organize things there was e180 which is a group uh out of montreal they were facilitating uh brain dates uh, uh small group conversations and christine Renault, who's who's the founder of that, also wrote a chapter of her book, Nomad Society. So it was really nice to get people back together. These conversations and having conversations has really spawned a, a new approach to uh, doing some research uh, where we're engaging people in World Cafe-type conversations. Mm -hmm. are, are you familiar with those? I am. Okay. So the World Cafe, it's just it's getting... Uh, it's you know, a large group of people together and people are seated around at tables of say no more six and at each table there's a table host who facilitates a conversation take notes and then people rotate between rounds of a conversation and while well, the table host remains to continue the conversation uh, continue taking notes what we've done is created a digital platform uh, where people can then contribute to an even broader conversation so we could have multiple World Cafe discussions happening around the world, and then people can then report back in the conversations that they've had answering specific questions, uh, but then also using tags and folksonomies uh, to help describe and connect ideas together uh, quite a bit, which then we could take into a qualitative data analysis process to see, you know, what did we learn from all of this? Mm -hmm. We're continuing this conversation then in Mexico, uh, working with the Secretary of Public Education and uh, Telefonica Foundation from Spain to look at the impacts of um, some interventions with technologies in several states uh, around the country. And then, well, it, I think it's quite likely then that project's going to scale up as well. Uh, but I think it's really nice to be able to have these conversations, uh, bring people in, uh, connecting ideas, 
Now, our approach has been not sort of like, you know, going out and serving people and saying, so what do you think? But rather, it's the facilitation of the conversation. So we get parents with teachers, uh, with students and other interested community members. So we're able to get the data that we want, but we also have the the unintended consequences, maybe, as we might call it, of um, just enabling serendipity. Um, getting people together, talking about these things, talking about things that are important to them, and maybe even inspiring action that would go outside of the scope of the, sc- of the study itself. Mm-hmm. So I'm really looking forward to that in the next couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And if there are any groups uh, uh, engaged in World Cafe or multiple groups uh, engaged in World Cafe type conversations, uh, I'd love to invite you to try out this tool and give us feedback so that we can improve this and hopefully release this out to the public as something that, um, that's uh, open. Now, we had piloted out this uh, approach to, to doing research in Uruguay and also in the state of Puebla in Mexico. Uh, in both cases, we're looking at technology integration. So in Uruguay, we're looking at um, sort of they, they're the first country in the world to really bring out one-to-one computing, uh, which included, you know, wiring in schools, making sure everybody's got electricity, making sure that everybody's got Internet and making sure that every child has had a laptop as well. Um and we just asked the question, so what next? Um, and it was fascinating to have kids and adults together uh, and other interested community members um, talking about these things and what they wanted to do. And what we found is that the parents wanted to be uh, much more involved and connected with it as well. Because while we're investing a lot of uh, resources in, in, um, in educational technologies, uh, parents want to learn as well and update and upgrade their skills, um, but and also to connect with uh, what students are learning as well. And so those are some really great conversations. Mm-hmm. And then we found some similar results uh, as well in, uh, in the state of Puebla, Mexico, uh, looking at um, schools in Zacatlan, the city of Puebla, and in a, in a small uh, agricultural community uh, that had essentially a boarding school. Uh, so some very fascinating conversations. You can read the reports of these. They're available for free, uh, free access at educationfutures.com. I think it might be interesting to have our listeners weigh in on their thoughts with technology integration. Um, I know at least in the school district where I work and teach, uh, there we're doing a lot with uh, personalized learning and one-to-one initiatives with Chromebooks. Uh, I know in our area, at least in Minnesota, there's a lot of one-to-one iPad initiatives and things like that. Uh, it might be interesting to throw out those questions that you discussed in Puebla and in Uruguay to see if our listeners would be interested in uh, sending in email responses with their thoughts. Right. We really culminated with a question, can we create a collective capacity to transform learning in our communities utilizing these technologies? Uh, so I would love to hear from our, our listeners on their thoughts on this. So when you engaged in the World Cafe experiences and collected that data, what questions specifically were the participants discussing? Well, these studies are all a little bit different. So in Uruguay, we asked, what is our boldest vision for positive education futures in Uruguay? And then we asked, looking forward, how, how can we best engage all segments of our communities to collaborate and create positive futures for Uruguay schools and youth? And then we asked, what are our next steps for developing this collective capacity for our community? Put our community in quotes because that can, be, can really be defined or redefined by just about anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And what can we pass on to the next conversation groups that will explore these ideas? So the conversation, we really want to structure to be this sort of living thing that we report back uh, what we learned as we continue forward. Mm-hmm. So I think those questions would be really interesting for listeners to weigh in on um, as within their own communities, their own schools, their own districts, their own states, um, what that might look like in their areas. Absolutely. You know what? In, in the podcast description uh, and the post that goes along with this, uh, we'll post these questions in and we'll set up a virtual World Cafe uh, reporting site so people can submit their ideas and uh, we can share them in a future episode. Yeah, that sounds great. Now that you've listened to this podcast, why not earn an hour of continuing professional education? After all, you've already done half the work. Just go to educationfutures.com learn and sign up for the Moodle course that corresponds with this episode. After you post your thoughts in response to the questions we have for you in the Sound Off Forum, you can download your certificate of completion. It's free, and it's our gift to you for listening and supporting us. Again, visit educationfutures.com learn to earn your free continuing professional education credit. You can learn more about the series at educationfutures.com slash podcast. If you'd like to chat with us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at edfutures and on Facebook at educationfutures. Keeping conversations about the future of education going depends on you. We would love for you to share your stories, thoughts, opinions, and ideas for use in upcoming podcasts. Please email me at kelly at educationfutures.com and visit us at educationfutures.com to engage in the discussion on evolving learning and the future of education. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at Kelly Kalorn. And I'm at Marvick. You can also email me at john at educationfutures.com. Thank you. And we look forward to continuing the conversation with you in our upcoming podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.